All thanks and praises due to God. We seek God's help and forgiveness. We seek refuge in God from the evil within ourselves and the consequences of our evil deeds. Whoever God guides will never be led astray, and whoever God leads astray will never find guidance. I bear witness that there is no God but God, alone without any partners, and I bear witness that Muhammad is God's ser servant and God's messenger. You who believe, be mindful of God, as is God's due, and make sure you devote yourselves to God to your dying, dying moment. When I think about my childhood, I think about a lack of role models and identity confusion. When my sister, my cousin, and I played at being musicians, we pretended to be a white male band because we thought it was cool. When we played with Barbie dolls, the one with black hair was always the villain or the mean girl. When I read fiction in classes, I thought I identified more with white characters, particularly male characters, more than I did with non-white characters. In fact, I resented reading books about uh, books where the main character was not white because the, the themes of the book, as I thought at the time, were about the cult character's culture, race relations, or gender, whereas books about white male characters were universal themes. Um, basically, I had internalized the colonial mindset and viewed myself as uh, inferior to white people and men, even though I wouldn't think of it that way at the time. Of course, growing up in Orange County as the only Muslim student um, in your class for most of your formative years can kind of, and being bullied for that can also probably do that to you. Um, what I needed back then was a Kamala Khan, a Pakistani American Muslim superhero known as Ms. Marvel. A positive representation of a teenager going through the same struggle with identity who fails now and then but picks herself up and keeps going. She's a positive role model and embodies the idea of why representation in media matters. An article um, this year on HuffPost about why representation, why on-screen representation matters um, said visual media teaches us how the world works and our place in it. When you don't see people like yourself, the message is you're invisible. The message is you don't count. And the message is there's something wrong with me. But, the message, uh, but this message doesn't only apply to media, it also applies to history. When I think about Islamic history, uh, as it's taught today, most of the key figures mentioned are generally men. When you think about it, how many male companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, can you name and their key roles in history? I can also rattle off a few of the male leaders of the Ottoman and the Mughal empires, along with major Islamic scholars. But how many women can similarly be identified? Um, if, if I'm being truthful, apart from the Prophet Wasallam's wives and daughters, the only other major female, um, female figures that I can think of are Nuseiba, one of the early converts of Islam who fought the at the Battle of Uhud, and Rabia Basri, an eighth century Sufi mystic. Even though historical records prove that there were thousands of Muslim women who played a key role in the spread of Islam. Growing up, I used to believe that Muslim women were defined by so many shoulds. How women should act, how women should dress, what women should say um, that we're not allowed to just be. And I think one of the reasons for this is that I didn't have enough examples throughout history of Muslim women being themselves, defining themselves, and creating spaces for themselves that embodied their identities. And this isn't because these examples didn't exist, but because they've been 
purposefully or um, that because they've been either lost or purposefully overlooked in history due to colonialism, politics, or simple misogyny. What I want to do today is showcase some of these examples. Uh, some of these examples. I want to introduce you to some amazing Muslim women in history who fought to reshape their lives within and outside the parameters of religious thought, society, and across religious and other identities. Muslim scholars have identified three main areas where Muslim women have attempted to enact change in, throughout Islamic history. Um, the first is where they have asserted control over their personal lives. Uh, in larger context, this might uh, seem trivial without significant impact on the broader society, but I think we can all recognize how difficult it is to take charge of your personal life and go against what is expected of you. Um, they may have asserted control by choosing their own spouses, ensuring their husbands remain monogamous, or by refusing to wear certain clothes in defiance of certain um, social norms and dictates of their husband. And some of the women I'll talk about did just that. The second area is where women um, work to improve social norms and or affairs of the state as either writers, mystics, scholars, um, and they influence the culture and as scholars were able to influence key decision makers. Um, and the third is where women showed solidarity relating to initiatives by women in support of women. So I'm going to go in chronological order throughout, uh, through history from the early followers of the Prophet Sallallahu to the present, but I want, to think, we want you to think of these themes um, and keep them at the back of your mind. But before we get started, I also want to take a quick, quick minute to recognize that um, we are now in the first 10 days of Dhul-Hijjah, and it's really important to remember that one of the most significant rituals performed during the Hajj commemorates an extraordinary woman's act of faith. Like, um, like Hagar, millions of Muslims will be running between, seven times between the hills of Safa and Marwa to honor her desperate search for water for her infant son and her faith in God that he would deliver them from their predicament. So as I mentioned earlier, um, and some of you might already know of Nuseiba bin Kab, who was an early convert, and she's legendary, um, early convert to Islam, and um, she's legendary for being the first female to fight in defense of the religion when the new community of Muslims were being persecuted within their society. She was one of the only two women who partook in the second Pledge of Allegiance in, of Islam, um, by newly converted Muslims. After converting, she fought alongside the Prophet in self-defense against the Meccans in the Battle of Uhud, the Battle of Hunayn, the Battle of Yamama, and the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Although initially she just accompanied the warriors into battle to provide assistance, Nuseiba began fighting during the Battle of Uhud. The Prophet abandoned, um, archers abandoned their position and the battle turned from victory to defeat, and she was, one of the, uh, she was at the Prophet's side to protect him from the arrows of the opposition. More so than being the first female warrior in Islam, one of my favorite stories of Nuseiba, um, some say this is Umm Salama, is when she, said, um, when she asked the Prophet in the Quran, um, asked why in the Quran only men were mentioned and women were often deprived of any, um, deprived of any importance. Soon after this incident, a new verse was revealed that said, Verily, for Muslim men and women, for believing men and women, for the men and women who are obedient, the men and women who are truthful, the men and women who are patient, the men and women who are humble, the men and women who give charity, 
the men and women who observe fast, the men and the women who guard their chastity, and the men and the women who remember Allah much with their hearts and, and tongues. Allah has prepared for them forgiveness and a great reward. What resonates with me about this particular act is that Muslim women wanted to be active participants in the religion, and they boldly asked the Prophet why they weren't specifically mentioned in the Quran. Some commentators interpret this as question as politically motivated, but I think it reflects the immense love that these early Muslim women had for Islam. To me, it's because they cared so deeply that they wanted to be specifically referenced and this reflected in, their, in the Quran and in their religion. Arwa Ome Musa was an 8th century woman who was married to Al-Mansur, the Abbasid Caliph at the time. She agreed to marry him on the condition that he would bind himself to a marriage contract that required um, him not to take any second wife or any concubines during her lifetime. Arwa enforced this contract consistently. Upon becoming Caliph, Al-Mansur tried to have their contract annulled, but every time she felt that it was threatened, she went to the court to enforce it. Finally, to resolve the issue once and for all, Arwa went to the highest Islamic judicial authority, the Grand Judge of Cairo, um, and she had him come to Baghdad from Cairo for the sole purpose of adjudicating their marriage contract. The Grand Judge ruled in favor of Arwa and the contract remained in, uh, remained in effect until her death. Contrast this to how many Muslim women today are either unaware of, unable to, or simply don't care enough about their right to formulate or enforce a marriage contract. In so many marriages, the contract becomes symbolic when it can actually be a very powerful tool. And that's what we have reflected here. Maybe because I'm a lawyer, I'm getting more excited about contracts than others might be. But how amazing is it to learn about a woman in the eighth century who recognizes her own value and appreciates her Islamic rights enough to basically appeal her case to the highest judge in the land. The fact that the legal system is accessible for, to her and um, is a whole different topic, but the assertion of her rights is something I find very meaningful. A final note on Arwa is that she is also a great example of a powerful woman using her position to help other women who are more vulnerable. Um, in her will, she left an endowment providing for concubines who gave birth only to female children. Uh, Rabia Basri is a uh, you might also have no, uh, heard of her, is she's uh, lived in ninth, ninth century Basra and is possibly one of the most famous uh, women Sufi mystics, uh, or Sufi mystics. Uh, the idea of divine love is attributed to her and she's said to have inspired Rumi more than any other poet. Rabia Basri devoted her life to God alone. She asserted her life to live alone and celibate to practice that devotion. This is important when you consider that she lived in a society where marriage, especially for women, was the norm. When people questioned her decision, she apparently told them, I have been left bewildered to, uh, by worry over three things. If you free me from the worry about them, I will marry. First of all, at the moment of my death, shall my faith be sufficient to bring me salvation? Second, Will the book of my deeds be given to me in my left hand or my right hand? Third, upon the hour when a party of people are called forth on the left hand to hell and another group from the right hand are summoned to heaven, which company will I belong to? 
Rabia Basri was also known to challenge the idea of male superiority. There's a story of men saying to Rabia that all virtues have been scattered upon men's heads. The crown of prophethood has been placed upon men's heads. No woman has ever been a prophet. To which Rabia replied, all that is true, but egoism and self-worship have never sprung from a woman's breast. All of these things have been the specialty of men. Rabia inspires me because she refused to let social norms dictate her chosen path. Uh, in 13th century India, the Mamluk ruler, Altamish, named his daughter Razia Sultana as his heir, choosing her over his sons. Razia immediately faced a challenge from her brother, Ruknadin, who killed his own brother to intimidate Razia and force her to abdicate. Razia, who was a consummate politician, went public in the Jamia Masjid of Delhi and appealed to the general populace for justice. The people sided with Razia and Ruknadin was arrested for the murder of his brother, tried in court, and then executed. Razia worked quickly and established her rule. She ordered coins minted in her name as Pillar of Woman, Queen of the Times, Sultana Razia, daughter of Shamsuddin Altamish. And the uh, Jum, uh, Friday Khutbah was also read in her name. However, her authority could not be considered legitimate until the Caliph of Baghdad also acknowledged it. While the Caliph was not the ruler of the land, he was still considered the spiritual head of Sunni Islam at the time and carried the title of the leader of, believer, uh, leader of the believers. Consequently, Razia declared her allegiance to the Caliph with the following proclamation. In the time of Imam al-Muntasir, Amir al-Mu'manin, Malika al-Tamish, daughter of Sultan al-Tamish, who increases the glory of Amir al-Mu'manin. The Caliph, for his part, recognized her as the Malika of Delhi, partly because he needed a Sunni bulwark to the east of the territories controlled by the Mongols, who were already closing in on Baghdad. I think the greatest lesson from Razia's example is that Muslim women were clearly experts at the Game of Thrones. In 1794, in what is now Nigeria, Nana Asmal was born into a family of male and female Islamic scholars. Her father was a famous spiritual and political leader who established the Sokoto Caliphate and was a strong supporter of, the women's, edu of women's education and of social justice. Nana and her siblings were taught literature, math, Islamic theology, and logic. Nana was a key player in the affairs of the state. When her father was appointing, to, appointing men to official positions, she asked, what about us women? To which he replied, you will, be all, uh, you will be over all the women. The women of the caliphate belong to the women, and the men belong to the men. Nana insisted on women's rights to go out, uh, women's rights to go out freely and to seek education. In the 1840s, she launched a movement for women's education, which still survives. She formed a network of female teachers called Jajis, who traveled throughout the caliphate, educating women from a range of ethnicities and backgrounds, rich, poor, Muslim, non-Muslim, and in turn, each jaji then turned their, taught their own group of learned women called, um, and the group was called the uh, Yantaru, or those who congregate together, or the sisterhood. Later, Nana married her brother's friend, and when her brother ascended to the caliphate, he appointed his brother-in-law as the vizier. 
and Nana was made responsible for the welfare of the women and the religious education of the entire community. Uh, she devoted her life to educating women, teaching them basic values such as morality and devotion, but equally academic subjects such as law and theology. What I find most fascinating about her is how she took stock of the realities of women's roles and responsibilities at the time and created an educational system that to work around uh, that or work around their responsibilities rather than directly challenge them and still achieved her goal. She recognized that women, especially rural women, would, have, would be unable to leave their homes or towns for significant periods of time, and she developed the Yantaharu network in response so that the teachers could go to the students. Raja Asya Suleiman lived uh, during the turn of the century, during the 20th century, in what's now Malaysia. Malay Indonesian society at the time was reacting to anti-Dutch sentiments resistance to colonial rule and, resu and resulting for a call for, um, and what resulted was a call for a return to a purer form of Islam. Reactions to these uh, ideas in some ways served to constrict spaces available to women and undermine gender equitable norms. Literature became a medium for self-expression and many women during this time wrote texts that were intended to be publicly sung. In these texts, women would write about female protagonists. However, the, there was often a pattern that every time the protagonist made a great accomplishment, it was, they were disgu disguised as men when they were able to do that. So, for example, a woman who posed as an Islamic scholar to save her foolish husband from bankruptcy, a male Islamic scholar. It was in this environment that Asya Suleiman was writing her stories. She began writing as a teenager and published her first novel, her first work at the age of 20. Her best known work is a poem that was published after her death. It's considered to be somewhat autobiographical and the heroine is called Sabaria. Asya's writing raised questions about the position of women in the changing world and she was among the first women in the region not to hide her protagonist in male attire. Additionally, she also did not shy away from claiming authorship of her work, as was very common amongst women at the time. For me, Asya is an example of how women used uh, writing, literature, and the arts in general as an outlet and mechanism for change. Yang Weizhen was born in an area called Little Mecca by Chinese Muslims, uh, by, called Little Mecca by the Chinese Muslims of Zuku City in the Henan province in 1913. She ran a women's mosque, which was quite common in that part of China. It was not unusual for uh, amongst the Chinese Muslims of a mature age or wid widows or for women who, uh, who were married to an imam to enter Islamic schools and prepare themsel the, um, themselves for a religious career. What makes her unique is, when, is that she was accused by the religious leadership that was backed by the All China Islamic Association of improper use of the mosque, unseemly independent actions in violation of, uh, of the proper authorities, and lack of consultation with, men's, uh, with the men's mosque, and a general defiance uh, inconsistent with the code of uh, conduct of a female imam. So what exactly did she do? She opened her mosque to care for orphans. She further shocked the traditional male leadership by expanding her charitable work to include a larger number of Weizhou refugees who had been driven into Shanghai 
and the surrounding regions from the Sino-Japanese War, when she decided to operate an association um, of widows to shelter and care for widows and orphans, her contract to run the women's mosque was terminated. It wasn't necessarily that the leadership, um, it wasn't necessarily the work that she was doing that the leadership found objectionable. It was more the fact that they had not been informed of her activities and she had raised funds independently um, and instead of going under the association's umbrella. So she had defied the normal structure and for that reason, she was kicked out of her mosque. Um, however, she continued to work independently. She rented a new building and continued her charitable work, continued fundraising for herself and financing um, her work and, uh, without, uh, without the association. What's significant about her is that she defied these patriar patriarchal constraints in furtherance of her local mosque, uh, of, her local, of the local Muslim and non-Muslim communities. There's also many more recent examples I can list, from the human rights lawyer Asma Jahangir, Pakistani activist Malala Yousafzai, to Olympian Ibtihaj Muhammad. But the important thing to take away is that there's so many wonderful examples of women, of Muslim women in the past and present that we can take inspiration from. I say what I've said, may God forgive us all. Alhamdulillah, all praise and thanks are due to God alone. So I share the stories of women today, not only to hopefully serve as an inspiration to you all, but also to highlight the importance of women's history in general. Ask yourself why we study history in the first place. Some of the reasons we study it is because history helps us understand people and societies. It shapes our understanding of the world and it helps provide a sense of identity. But if most of the history that we are taught is filled with the exploits of men, then where does a woman's sense of identity and history come from? Going back to the research relating to visual media, a 2012 study that focused on children found that TV made viewers feel good about themselves, if those viewers were white boys. In contrast, girls and boys of color reported lower self-esteem as they watched. The researchers were confident that it was the lack of representation that could be responsible for this effect. They referred to the term symbolic annihilation, which is the idea that if people don't see themselves, see people similar to themselves in media, then they interpret that to mean that they are somehow unimportant. Maybe if I had learned a little bit more about Muslim women in history while I was growing up, I would have found role models to emulate that were more like myself and less like Alexander Hamilton. I would have had more confidence in myself rather than believing that I was somehow less than because I was a brown girl. I also want to make sure that we don't have another generation of young girls who are being robbed of Muslim role models. So let's make sure that we start digging deeper into our Muslim history for women achievers, that we ask our leaders to include more examples of women in their lectures, and that we share what we learn with young girls so that they, ne they never have to struggle with low self-esteem for a lack of role models. God says in the Quran, the believing men and women, the, uh, the believing men and the believing women are allies of one another. They enjoin what is right 
and forbid what is wrong, and establish prayer and give charity, and obey Allah and Allah's messenger. Those Allah will have mercy upon. Indeed, Allah is exalted and might and wise. God commands justice, doing good, and generosity towards relatives, and God forbids what is shameful, blameworthy, and oppressive. God teaches you so that you may take heed. Wa'akimina salah. Let's perform the prayer. <laughs> 